people's situation is not always a result of the choices that they make. The mm-hmm. Bible talks mm-hmm. about poverty and disenfranchisement can come by someone, yes, culpability of, of what there's one being lazy, not working hard enough. And then the Bible also talks about poverty because of injustice. Mm-hmm. This is not political. Every one of those things should be spoken to because God speaks to all of those things. You're listening to As in Heaven, a Christian conversation on race and justice. In this episode, we talk with John Edagon and Amin Hudson about the nuances of the Afro-Latino experience and the ways in which language and code switching relate to power and power dynamics. Now, if you're newer to this conversation and you're not really familiar with these terms, John and Amin do a great job of defining them in an approachable and a pastoral way. Jim Davis is your host, Mike Aitchison is your co-host, Mike Graham is the executive producer, and my name is Matt Kenyon, I'm the technical producer, and without further ado, please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Amin and John. All right, welcome to As in Heaven, I'm your host, Jim Davis, my co-host today is my brother Michael Aitchison over there, and we're, we're excited to do something a little bit different today. We're bringing two friends on this on the show today, we're joined by Amin Hudson and John Aragon. Uh, Amin is a writer and speaker who focuses on the intersection of theology, art, and culture. He's also the co-host of the Southside Rabbi podcast, and uh, and Amin and John uh, are both uh, members of Living Faith Bible Fellowship down the road in Tampa. Well, your pastor, Daryl Williamson, we've, we've, we've had him on this podcast. We had a lot of fun. We consider him a friend. So just that connection gets me excited. And then, John, you serve as a teaching and preaching—you serve on the teaching and preaching team at that church. Uh, you are a proud son of a, of a Colombian immigrant. You have a heart for the unique beauty and challenges of immigrants and Afro Latino people. You are uh, the founder of John Aragon and the creative director and co-founder of the Native Supply Company. And uh, you live there with your wife and and your daughter. Both of you, man, I'm, I'm thankful for you. You uh, both have done a lot in writing. You're both contributors to the Gospel Coalition, whose family podcast we're a part of. So just thank you both for what you're doing and joining us today. I was reflecting on some days when I was at RTS with somebody recently. I was so excited, of course, when Pastor Darrell came on, and then I heard that Amin was going to come on. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a nice season, because I was thinking back to the times I'd come down there and, and uh, worship with you all and, and even had the time to opportunity to preach at the Canon and some Sunday mornings. We, we had a good time, man. Yes, man. I miss you, man. <laughs> yes, I'm glad. I'm glad to see you again, man. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we got to figure out how to get you up here to Orlando uh, one of these days, both of you all. Only down, yes, we only sir. down the road, man. We're right down yeah, the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there are a lot of reasons that, that we wanted to have you all on the show. Not You know, you're down the road. We love Daryl. We love what you're doing. We love your podcast. And, and we specifically wanted to bring you all on. We really want to talk about three things in this episode that, that really we, we don't address elsewhere. We want to talk about the unique contours of the Afro-Latino experience, uh, the ways in which language impact our cultural moment, and we want to introduce the concepts of transitional justice. And so we, we felt like you two would be really great for this sprawling conversation. And in many ways, it builds upon our previous episode where we talk with Jerome Gay about dominant and subdominant cultures. So if you haven't listened to that one already, it would be worth your time to go listen to Jerome Gay and then come back and listen to this episode because we really they're, they're building together. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to throw John the first question. Uh, could you just paint for us? a high-altitude picture of Afro-Latinos in South, in South America. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, thank you for having us. We're both, I mean, and I are excited to be part of this conversation and just uh, lend our voices to, to, to this topic. But yeah, uh, wow, high-altitude of Afro-Latinidad. So I've said in passing, and I mean, has probably heard me say this, say this over the years, that Afro-Latinos were like the sugar and coffee. You can't see us, but we bring the flavor, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what that speaks to the can't see part is the reality that Afro-descendientes or Afro-Latinos, Afro-descendant people have had to navigate and grapple with their own cultural identity 
and how that interfaces with the context that they find themselves in. And we'll talk about the diaspora later, but um, there's so many nuances in the term Afro-Latinidad, right? So the, 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 the term Latinidad has, has historically been uh, adopted with and associated with whiteness, right? So I can, uh, and I mean, it's familiar with this, but my experience as an Afro-Latino here states that because, you know, both my parents, uh, faithful gospel ministers, um, but once me and my family immigrated here stateside, I wasn't considered Latin because I didn't look or appear to be like what people were accustomed to seeing on Univision or Telemundo. So their concept of what an an Afro-Latino was, was pretty much non-existent. So, but specifically within South America or more so where, you know, me and my, where my family are from in Colombia, Afro-Latinidad, that label is, uh, there's spaces where that label is adopted and is embraced, but by and large, the label isn't necessary. So what I mean by that is, uh, you know, me being a person who I've had to isolate, uh, oscillate between what it means to be Black in Colombia and what it means to be Black here stateside. Um, here, here in the States, is, it's, we're really good at homogenizing identities, right? So we like to group people together in these pan-ethnic pan terms. And there's value in that, of course, taking, to some degree, taking various racialized categories and uh, bringing them into unified spaces. And there's value in that, but it does cause some sense of erasure. So in Colombia or in South America, in a lot of spaces, I'm just considered negro or moreno, prieto, right? I don't have to really grapple with the, the, the identity of what it means to be Latino because I'm within the context where it's understood that you can be a dark-skinned person with a incredible amount of melanin and be incredibly Latin or Afro-Colombiano or Afro-Ecuadorian or Afro-fill-in-the-blank, right? Uh, so for Afro-Latinos in South America, I think one of the ways that they've had to really grapple and wrestle with what it means to be Afro-Latino, a lot of that happens here in the States. Um, but yeah, in, in South America, there are instances and spaces either within my country or, or in other countries where we do need to deal with, you know, a sense of colorism and having to navigate the nuances of what it means to be Black, as we understand what Black is, but also being a, uh, a Spanish-speaking Black person. Um, so, but yeah, the, just a, a high view, I think it's one, uh, w- that the stories of what it means to be an Afro-Latino is often unseen. And I think that's one of the things that Afro-Latinos for centuries have had to deal with. So I really appreciate the way that you you set that up and you distinguish between Afro-Latinidad culture and and maybe an African-American here. So when you're now, you know, in America, you you said there you have both cultures and you grapple uh, with with your identity. Can you can you kind of drill down a, a little bit on that? What is it? How would you process uh, your identity versus um, an African-American who spent his whole life, maybe generations here? Sure. Yeah. So I've been told from people, not just in my, in all the places that I've lived here stateside, that I'm not black. Now, those who are just listening to the podcast know that I'm a very dark skinned person. <laughs> uh, so I think one, one, one of the ways that we can think about this is that here stateside, we have created a construct of what it means to be black. So it's not just associated to skin complexion, but and included in that is also this experience of what it means to be a black person in America. But it's uh, in, in spaces, it's become a politicized word. So, for example, when me and my family, we immigrated here stateside in Colombia, black skin, or at least in Cali, Juan Manuela, black skin is adored, it's praised. Yes, there's black erasure. Yes, Colombia did have a black president 
And that was in large part erased from the history up until a few years ago where he was really engrafted into the history books. But in Colombia, by and large, in my experience, blackness was embraced and celebrated. Coming here stateside, that was completely different. So I'll, I'll, I'll share this quick anecdotal story for you. So put yourself in the shoes of a young 13-something-year-old 13, 13 young Afro-Latino who is proud of his cultural identity, which is, you know, he's a Colombian. And now he's here stateside having to grapple with what it means to be Black. So I was then at that time learning English because Spanish, uh, Spanish is my first language. And I wasn't fully embraced by African-Americans because I didn't act Black enough. So that was one cultural hurdle that I had to really learn how to navigate over, over the years. But also, I wasn't really embraced by the Latin community because I didn't look Latin enough. So for Afro-Latinos here stateside, for many of us, we're having to navigate the, the, the complexities of what it means to be Black in America, but also have this rich, diverse Latin history and heritage that is being clear to represent Afro-Latinos in our respective countries, but here stateside, it's either not embraced or understood. So over the years, especially as I was hitting the cusp of my adulthood, I really had to wrestle with what it means to be an Afro-Colombiano or Afro-Latino in America, because the challenges here are this is very, very difficult. There are similarities because we know colorism is a global issue. But here stateside, navigating the nuances of what it meant to be Black and Latino, yeah, that, that, that took years. That took years of grappling and having to navigate and, have, uh, and unlearn and relearn what it means to be, or unlearn and relearn um, what it meant to embrace my skin color. Um, and last thing. When I came here stateside too, it was one of the first times I started to be discriminated against as a as an Af, as an Afro Latino, being called and you know any person of color can resonate with this and this is why there's so many similarities between Afro descendant community which includes African Americans and Afro Latinos, which are part of the diaspora in all of South America, but having to navigate hearing either racial slurs or included with the racial slurs, people including expletives in their language towards me and my personhood, that does something to your soul formation. So I, I'm just thankful that I had, uh, you know, father, my father and surrogate fathers in my life to really help me find my identity, which included an identity formed in Christ, of course, but what it means to be a black man, a Spanish-speaking black man in America. Man, that it's so sad to me that that I mean, it, it that you experienced no discrimination, and when you moved to the United States, that's when you began to experience it. If, if, we, if thinking back to South America, back to Colombia, uh, I'm curious: are there linguistic differences or nuances that are unique to Afro Latinidad culture or in the cultural identity that are different from non-Afro Latinos? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There surely are. Um, though the majority of the discrimination I've experienced my in my life has been here stateside, you see the same in in, um, in South America, in Colombia, which was the context where my identity was shaped and formed. I mentioned earlier that um, Colombia, back in <clears throat> back in the 18, 1860s, had one of their first uh, black presidents. <clears throat> and it took, you know, more than 160 years for this president to be uh, not just uh, recognized, but really be a part of, you know, the legacy and the history of what Colombia has had to experience for the last 200 years of their independence. Um, in South America, uh, I also think about uh, there are certain spaces in Colombia that uh, the term Latino or Latina uh, are familiar, but they're not people who are of Afro descendant, that they're part of the Afro descendencia, aren't part of that group, right? 
So unfortunately, even so in South America, we still have an incredible amount of discrimination that we're having to learn and navigate through and understand the nuances of what it means to be a Colombian, but not really embraced by the community. So uh, as I mentioned before, not only being embraced by the African-American community, but not being embraced by the Latin community. And I've experienced this as I've, I've as I've gone back to Colombia in my adulthood. But my father would, not just in Colombia, but here stateside, would intentionally in certain spaces because he is experienced and has had to navigate it his entire life, intentionally speak in English because he knew he would be uh, respected more as an image bearer if mm. he wasn't seen as a Black Latino, right? So the same way we experience racialized conversations in America is almost identical in South America. So I've had to learn how to navigate, how to take off the, I can't embrace my Afro-descendant Latin, Afro-Latin identity here because it's not going to be respected. It's not going to be embraced. Therefore, I'm going to put on a persona where I can at least navigate the conversation in a way that's respectful and dignifying so that I can be acknowledged and and seen. Um, But linguistically, I think the term Afro-Latino is predominantly used here stateside. In Colombia, we you'll see terms used like negro or moreno or prieto, which are terms of endearment, um, which is interesting, right? Um, but in certain spaces, you'll you will see those same terms used and they're more derogatory terms based on the tone or the context. So it's really interesting where the same term can be used, but depending on the context, it could be something that can really break the person down or really build them up. So for example, my daughter, who's four, I call her Negra, right? So my wife is Puerto Rican, Jamaican, and Filipino. And my daughter has rich, beautiful melanin skin, and I call her Negra to help reinforce that her skin is beautiful and it should be celebrated. So when she does hear that term in a derogatory way, she's reminded of, wow, that term I've heard, I grew up hearing my father use that term as a way to, as, as a, as a form of endearment. So even, even as she grows into her teenage years, oh my goodness, and into her adulthood, as she's being, as her dignity can be stripped from her either by other men or other people, when she hears that term, she's reminded that that skin is beautiful. So linguistically, that, that's one of the realities you see in South America as well. So you mentioned the uh, the diaspora, the Afro-Latino diaspora. This is something that I actually knew nothing about and not had, had not engaged with, been exposed to until I had the opportunity to do some uh, some ministry work in Cuba, actually. But would you help uh, help explain some of the layers, explain what it is and some of the layers of that phenomenon? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, uh, I mean, stateside, I think the understanding for some people can be um, during the transatlantic slave trade, the majority of slaves came here to the United States. Um, I remember uh, a year ago, I got invited to go speak out of school for Black History Month. The teacher who invited me was a Cuban. Uh, she, she was Cuban and she had a heart for Afro-Latino. So she asked me to come to speak to the entire school specifically on Afro-Latinidad. So there I am. I go to the school. I'm in at where the auditorium. I go on stage and I start, uh, you know, I start the presentation speaking in Spanish. Now, it's a school filled with students. <clears throat> now, when I tell you there is jaws dropped and on the floor, I mean, it was just an incredible sight to see. Um, but during the transatlantic slave trade, which lasted between the 15 and 1800s, there were around, what, 11 million African-Americans disembarked from the slave, slave ships. Of course, there are more, but not all of them survived. Out of the 11 million, about 450,000 came to the United States, right? So the United States got about 5%. The rest of the world, obviously, including Europe, but predominantly South America and the Caribbean got everyone else. 
Um, and for us living here stateside and in America, there's this, there can be an incredible amount of ignorance around that, either through willful ignorance or we could call it revisionist history, right? Um, but that's just one of the realities. Um, and as I mentioned before, color cast, uh, you experience color cast not just here stateside, but in, in Africa, uh, in, in South America. And the hatred towards, you know, uh, Afro-descendientes in, in, in South America has been prevalent for years. And for example, in the 100-year period between uh, the 1870s and the 1970s, Brazil, Brazil received about 5 million immigrants from Europe and the, mid- the Middle East. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a conscious policy to whiten the country because Brazil is one of the countries in the world that has the largest, one of the largest Afro descendant populations that they, re- that, th- that they received during the, during the diaspora. Um, so it's just so interesting to see how uh, being a product of la diaspora, um, I can be left out of some of the conversations because the understanding is the United States received most, if not all of the slaves during the transatlantic slave trade, but that's simply not the case. Majority went to South America. Um, large, one of the largest populations being in Brazil. I wish I could remember the book that I was reading when I, I read that for the first time. And I, I, I'd never, it was like my, I was never taught that. I don't know why I was never taught that, but I never learned it. So as an Afro-Latino here, what are, what are some of ho- your hopes that you have for Afro-Latinos in America? I am in and I'm, I'm part of communities filled with Afro-Latinos, either, you know, obviously here in our community, uh, you know, New York, I lived there for a while and in Colombia. I know for an Afro, for a lot of Afro-Latinos, their identity, their 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 identity and their cultural identity has been erased mm. and they're trying to discover who they are. And especially if you're, especially if you're an immigrant, I mean, the complexities there are a mile long and I know them full well because I had to live through them myself, everything from what it means to be discriminated, discriminated against. And I embraced by a people that look like you, but you don't speak like them or not being embraced by your own community and not being embraced by them because you don't fit the mold of this construct that's been developed here stateside. So I think one of my hopes is that Afro-Latinos here stateside find their value and their identity and their worth and their rich heritage and their history. Um, I think there's beauty in especially for us as believers, being able to find our identity in Christ and how that everything else really derives from that, which is is one of the beauties of what it means to be a follower of of Christ. But I I am still a black man in America, which means I am still having to grapple with the realities of what it means to be black in America, all the systemic challenges and all of the racialized disparities that I need to experience that my other brothers and sisters that do sympathize with me and don't share my skin complexion don't have to experience. So my hope is that, uh, you know, Afrodescendientes are able to, some of them I know are processing and grappling through various traumas. And I really, really pray that they're able to find their dignity and their worth in the Lord primarily, but they're able to celebrate and be proud of who they are, which is not just Latino, but Afro-descendant, you know? So you've, you've spoken to one audience right there. I want to give you an opportunity to speak to two other very specific audiences. Um, The first audience is the Afro-Caribbean, ADOS, African descendants of slavery, or African-Americans. Is there anything else that you specifically want them to hear from you about your experience? I would say that my, I'm, there's an intersectionality of what it means to be an Afro-Latino. I'm much more than just a black man. I'm much more than a Colombian. 
uh, much more than a Spanish speaking black man. And I think one of the things that I'd hope they would see and, and hear and understand is that in the complexities of my identity and the identity of so many of my other brothers and sisters, either in my immediate family or in, in my extended family, that they would see the richness and, and, the, and the beauty of God's community, you know, um, and how through various voices we're able to have this robust expression of who God is. Um, I think that'd be something really beautiful to see for my brothers and sisters who are non-Afro-Latinos. Um, and then for my Afro-Caribbean brothers and, brothers and sisters as well, who are part of La Diaspora, they have some of the same struggles that we do in South America. And I think about our, and I mean, and myself have uh, people in our community who are Puerto Rican, some of them who are Afro-Caribbean or lighter skin, but nonetheless, they're Puerto Rican. And a lot of those struggles are the same as well. Um, but yeah, I think the, the only thing, the only other thing I would add there is that they, I hope and pray that they would see the beauty and the complexities of God's people and his, and his image bearers, and that they would see past all of the various ways that we're vilified and, uh, distilled into singular categories. All right, third and final audience, and I'm guessing this is the largest part of our listenership, is going to be white evangelicals. What, what would you like specifically white evangelicals to know about your experience as an Afro-Latino? Yeah, um, I think I would like them to know that being a person in America is difficult. I think I would like them to know that I live, my lived experience as a black man is very different from theirs. Um, I w there's one couple and uh, I mean, it's good friends with them, but there's one couple at our church who, uh, I mean, they've been a godsend and we love them. And uh, in, in the midst of all the current events that have been happening the last several months, um, the wife and the daughter came to me and my wife's house around like 9 p.m. at night. Granted, given the volatility of the season, our hearts dropped what's happening. And here they are in front of the door, um, wanting to hug and embrace us, but because of the season that we're in, they couldn't. And they just wanted to pray and they just wanted to cry with us and, and offer any resources that they had to encourage us. But I think I, I say that to say that I know for a lot of my white brothers and sisters, given the volatility of the season, it's, it could be difficult to enter some into some of these racialized conversations because they may already enter into the conversation thinking they're the villain. Um, but I, I just mentioned that to say that we I've experienced sweet community and sweet friendship with my fellow white brothers and sisters that see and understand these issues. Um, and yeah, so as I was saying before, I think I want them to see and understand that my experience as an Afro Latino is very different from theirs. And the, the ways that uh, Black people or Afro-Latinos here stateside and in America have had to experience and inter internalize either self-hatred or, or the disdain that's used against us has an incredible amount. It, it just, the effects are uh, incredible. And I, I'm praying that as we're navigating these, these issues, we can see to it that we are dignified and we're celebrated regardless of our skin complexion, regardless of our color, because we are image bearers. So, yeah. yeah. John, bro, I, I am just sitting here just eating this all up. Um, everything you said just resonates so deeply. I, I appreciate you taking us from the high altitude down to your personal experience. It's It's rich. It's complex. It's beautiful. And I'm very sympathetic to what you said. Our primary identity is Christ, but that does not mean that we have to uh, divorce the culture in which we were birthed from uh, Christ's creativity. So um, thank you, brother. You, you are a Christian and all of your culture matters because it's uh, from God's creativity. So thank you for sharing that. Um, 
It's interesting to hear you talk about the linguistic nuances and subtleties that differentiated the um, subdominant Afro-Latinidad culture uh, identity from the dominant Latinidad. Um, and I say that all these things were going on in my mind because I'm half Jamaican. My mom's black American from the South. I was born in Miami. I've got Panamanian cousins, Cuban cousins. My first cousin is Malik Perez Wood. Okay, Cuban, Irish, Jamaican. My, 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 so, so, I mean, everything you described about the Afro-Caribbean diaspora is true of my life. Uh, it, uh, a party at home, reggae, soca, I, I mean, salsa, merengue, all of it. Okay? And we're not even going to talk about the food. But with that also comes the, the, the fun nuances and then the, the challenges of trying to figure out your place in the world. I found it to be more enriching uh, as far as the challenges are concerned, uh, as far as uh, God's work in my life than, than you know, than um, something I'd want to uh, dismiss, if you will. Um, I was on a visit with my grandparents recently. This is on the Jamaican side. And we were just sitting down talking. And it's amazing how just in a short course of conversation, as soon as you walk in the house, it's like you're in, as soon as you walk in the yard, you're in Jamaica. I mean, from from the tones, from the looks, from the expressions to the stories that start and just the different dynamics. And I think about that in juxtaposition to my African-American grandmother who grew up in the South, youngest of I, I thought it was 14. Evidently, it was 18 kids. And there was a fascinating incident that happened. And when she was meeting my wife, who's white from Birmingham, Alabama, we were sitting down talking. And I was just, you know, standard American English. You know, Mom, I said, it's, it's about, I called, it, I called her Mama. She's gone to glory now. I said, it's about two or. And she looked at me and said, two or? You mean two or? And I said, no, mama, two or. She said, you mean two or? And I said, yes, mama, two or. And it was almost as though a history lesson on English history, everything just converged in one moment. My grandmother was reminding me of our culture. She was reminding me not to forget where you come from. And people would discount that as perhaps her speaking bad English. But, uh, I mean, you'll, lead, you'll help us with this. There is a rich history of African-American uh, vernacular, okay? There's a rich history there. And it was used in a very crafty way for communication. And so that's, that's a part of the history that I share and embrace deeply. And so as we move into that uh, space, I mean, for those unfamiliar with the African-American vernacular English. Hereafter, I'll, I'll just say A-A-V-E. Can you explain what it is and some of the history? Yeah, so A-A-V-E, which <laughs> it, it has an interesting history. I actually like the way that um, that Danielle Young put it. She, Danielle Young, she's a journalist. She actually calls it a Black linguistic experience that's used uh, to describe a North American dialect of English by some Black people, Right. And uh, AAVE is something that is a, is kind of is kind of in uh, opposed to G G A E, which people would refer to as General American English, um, and it's kind of a colloquial form in which you know you have some Black people here in the states. It's kind of a, a, a colloquial way in which we speak that's not necessarily formal in regards to General American English, right? Um, the history of AAVE is 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 very diverse. There's not even there's not really um, a definitive view on how and where it started. Some folks think that think that it started with slaves and slavery. Um, another pe uh, uh, other people think that it's just, it just developed out of modern English. Um, there's there's not like a a concrete way in which people talk about how it came to be, but we have it. <laughs> and and the thing about AABE is that. Uh, some of the history, when you think about the history of it, 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 it you see the inception of it. A lot, a lot was in the, it was in the South, right? Uh, where a lot of, a lot of uh, black people, a lot of Africans were slaves during the great migration. We started spreading 
Um, and as that happened, the the kind of dialect that we use in African-American vernacular English started to change depending on where we were. So we there's there's still there's still general uh, there's a general form of AABE. But if you go to different places, people are going to going to speak it in different ways. The people in the, the way that people use AABE in New York is not the same way that people use AABE in, in Florida. And then the, the way that people use AABE in Los Angeles is not the same or in California is not the same way in which people use AABE in Chicago. So um, it's very diverse, but we do have kind of a set of rules and, and regulations to it. Um, and and uh, and yeah, the, 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 it, some, some folks may know the history of it and, and may call it Ebonics. That may be the history that, that some people would be familiar with. The thing about AABE is that historically we never, it never got any real great treatment from linguists. And now, now it kind of is. That's why now we, we're calling it African-American vernacular English, right? Um, but AAVE historically has always kind of been ghettoized. It's always been seen as a, uh, uh, communicating in a ghetto or uh, unintelligent. Um, uh, it was it's kind of a, it was kind of seen as a ghetto or unintelligent way of speaking. Um, and and it's just and that's not that's not necessarily true. There are certain standards of speech that I think that we have in the West and that we particularly have in America, um, in which we in, in which we kind of put place on everyone else. And if, and, and if folks don't meet that standard, then we kind of relegate their dialect or even their language as something that's less than, um, than ours. So, um, yeah, it has an interesting history. So, so Dr. Howard Dotson, uh, former president of the Schomburg center, very helpfully says in, in one of his lectures that it, it was in, in part some of the brilliance of the slaves where people would assume that they, their, lack of speaking formal English, quote unquote, was due to intellectual inferiority when it was they were creating their own system. And the mathematics behind it is fascinating, as you illustrated, because you can go to the north, you go out west, you go south. And I see this when I visit with my family on the particular on the southern side. And it actually emerges, too, out of my folks in the Caribbean who have come over and onboard into the southern black culture. And so you'll hear terms like Florida throwing an ER or cutting off a word or something like that. And it's absolute. The timing of it is fascinating. It's almost like you move from one world to the next and there's a lot of structure to it. Of course, growing up, you think it's just it's intuitive. But the older you get and look back, you're like, these folks are genius. This is not just some sort of uneducated kind of whatever. There's a, a deep intentionality behind this, the timing, the expressions, how long you do it, when you, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah, right. I, it's interesting for me too, because I mean, my wife is, her family's from Antigua. So they're, they're West Indian. Um, also live here in the South. So um, the, the, the kind of confluence of, of even like when you have, you know, AABE and then when you have the the switching between that and uh and and kind of general American English and then Patois and then it's 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 amazing, man. It's 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 being it's it's like being bi or tri dialectical almost. So, <laughs> you know, uh it, and so for people to think that somebody that's that that can do that is somehow unintelligent, less intelligent. Um, or it's a lower way of communication or some kind of broken English. It, it's just not true. It's a some, I mean, there's debates about if it's a language, but I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it, there's, there's a whole system behind it. Um, and it's amazing. And it's beautiful. Yes. Uh, I, you know, you, you talk about the Patois and, and a, all the good stuff. It's amazing how from one dialect to the next, it changes the, the mood of, the situation, the, the, it almost changes the entire context and, and, and the imagination, the things that it, it incites and invokes when you just go from one space to the next. And it's anyway, um, I was talking with with Michael Graham about this, my brother, and, and we had a funeral down in Miami and some folks from our family uh, who had come over in the 70s were involved with caring for the person. And you could almost walk with a blindfold and hear the A-A-V-E slash Patois being spoken, and you had a good idea of what year they came over. You can tell a person they were reared in Jamaica, but they lived a long time in our particular neighborhood, Richmond Heights for me, or South Miami or whatever, because you hear this almost third sort of dialect that emerges out of the Patois and the A-A-V-E. It's just, 
Fascinating. It's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, it's just beautiful, man. So uh, this question is for uh, both of you guys. So under what circumstances do you guys code switch from dominant culture English to AAVE or another dialect? Woo! Um, <laughs> you could go on me. So, man, for me, first of all, I think that we have to, one of the things that before we even talk about code switching is that we have to recognize why we have to code switch, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the reasons in which we have to coast, which is for the very reason in which we just talked about, right? For some, for, for when we think through this is that in certain, we as a society, especially here in America, we pay social capital to the way that people speak. So for, for general American English, we dole out, we, we assign meaning to the way that people speak. So if I'm speaking in general American English in, 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 in certain respects, I'm going to be respected. And, and, and so I'm going to have to learn what kind of, what kind of atmospheres and, and what kind of places in which I move requires which type of language I'm actually able to use. And that is actually come because we have essentially in America made general American English, which is actually, that's still even derived from another form of English. We have made that the, the, standard of, of, of language or dialect in which we pay the highest amount of social capital to. So mm-hmm. anything outside of that, we, we, we kind of deem it unintelligent, uneducated, um, it, poor, uh, uh, criminal. If I, I think about how some of the Greeks thought about people that didn't speak Greek, that they would look at them as barbarians. There's some scholars that I would even say that's kind of how, how it came to be, that people outside of our Greek-speaking language, we label them as monstrous, as barbarians, as savages, right? Um, and, and we can kind of have that same uh, relationship with general American English here in the States. And I think that for me, code switching, and, and I think that John will probably speak to this as well, is almost like living in the kind of double consciousness that Du Bois talked about, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. I am a Negro and, America, uh, and, yeah. and an American, and I mm-hmm. have to kind of navigate both of those waters. And I feel like it's like a double conscious of, of, of language, right? Um, in my world, which is in, in, if, if I'm in, like if I'm going back to Southside, St. Petersburg, Florida, where I'm from, or I'm around people that, that's from my context, I can use AABE without care. But when I come into the office or when I walk into the boardroom, or even if I sit down a, at, with a Christian publisher, book publishing company, now I have to switch to GAE in order to be taken seriously or seen as capable or seen as intelligent or trustworthy. And this is kind of why it's, it could, it could almost be, this is why it's kind of maddening when people talk about black people being intelligent and they mention that those, that the, their intelligence is being derived from them being articulate. So when you look at a black, you may have a, 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 a white person that would say, man, this black person is so smart. They're so articulate. And it kind of, it, it kind of, usually what they mean by that is that they speak general American English very well, right? Right, um, right. And, 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 and what makes them articulate is the mastery of the modern English language and, and them being able to master the king's speech. But, it, but, but why we have to be careful with that is because it, it kind of assumes that GAE is this standard for intelligence that's almost axiomatic. So if mm-hmm. you're outside of that standard, then you're not intelligent. So, um, but, but, but to go back to your, your question, um, yeah, there, uh, like I said, if I'm in a boardroom, if I'm, if I'm at a, even sometimes if I'm at a conference, if I'm in a, if I'm, if I'm at a publishing company, if I'm in a, it, it depends on the, the situation. Um, I would kind of code switch between just using AAVE and using, uh, you know, uh, uh, general American English. And it's kind of in this experience that many black people have. That's why they, they make jokes about your telephone voice or the, 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 the voice that you put on at, at work, right. Opposed to when you get around your homeboys and you know what I'm saying? So I think that, uh, that, it, that the code switching is very real, but I think that the code switching can, can sometimes point to a larger problem in how we, uh, assign meaning to dialect and how we assign meaning to language in, in regards to intelligence and capability. Man, did you just pull out the telephone voice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you already know when, when you're calling about that phone bill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I just wanted to call about, uh, you know, I just wanted to talk to you guys about the price of this bill. I wanted to make sure that we can get it as low as we possibly can. You know, <laughs> oh, not the telephone voice. <laughs> Man. Oh, 
Listen, I was reared with the telephone voice. Yeah. <laughs> man, oh man, we used to watch my mama with our head turned sideways. <laughs> you watch your parents do it, you watch your, your siblings do it, you watch your uncles, uh, aunts do it, and it comes from living in the world that doesn't value AAVE. Mm. Yes. And really. so they have to switch to a language in which they do value and um, which commands respect, kind of like Paul did in, in, in Acts, but oh, that's another situation. But um, but yeah, this has come up with uh, Jerome Gay. We talk about the idea of being articulate or speaking so well with Trillian Newbell. Um, I want to put my counselor hat, my pastoral hat on for a moment. And, and I want to understand more about your heart and your soul. When you code switch at, at a heart level, why, why are you doing that? What do you, what do you think you're trying to accomplish or accommodating? Or I just want to know more about what that feels like. All right. Because I think that I think that it feels like being black in America. Um, I think that what, mm-hmm. what that's why I mentioned Du Bois' double consciousness, because when we when 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 we're code switching, we recognize that the dominant culture, by and large, historically does not recognize AAVE as a language or as a dialect of intelligence. Mm-hmm. So we have to learn how to speak essentially two different languages or dialects so that we can actually be respected in certain circles. So I know that when, when, when I'm on that phone, <laughs> that I'm not going to be taken seriously if I'm not speaking in a way in which is, in, 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 my, in the general American English that is actually uh, given the social capital of respect and intelligence, right? So I have mm-hmm. to know how to, I, I have to, when I'm, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I got to pull out my best, I got to pull out my best, you know, uh, 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 English, general American English for this conversation because they have to think that I'm capable. They have to think that I'm smart. And it's a terrible way to have to live because you are, in a sense, fighting for your dignity via language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't believe that that is the way that God has intended the world to be, that you should not have to fight for your dignity via the way that you speak. That's not God's plan for his, 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 his creation. You, are, you have dignity for the fact that you are made in the image of God. Regardless of how you speak, what language you're able to master or not, how well you're able to master languages that is, that's given social capital, that should not be something that determines how folks view your intelligence or your intellectual ability or your capability or, your, or just your worth in general. And I feel like we... Um, have lived in a world in which we were like fish in water. We were raised in knowing that we have to code switch. It's normal for us, but it should mm-hmm. not be normal, right? Yeah. Um, and it's damaged. It's, it's even damaged the black community too, because even if you, I, some of you, some, some, some of my brothers here may be able to, 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 uh, to relate, but even if you are living in a predominantly black community, you speak general American English very well. Sometimes you'll have people in that black community saying, you sound like you're white. Right. Why do you mm-hmm. talk white? Mm-hmm. And that comes from the un- that comes from a larger narrative of general American English, not only being seen as the standard English that uh, or, or, or dialect that has all of the social capital, but the dialect that is only mastered by white people mm-hmm. and, and, and mm-hmm. to, to the point that when that that even black folks are can be taught to that kind of language is white language. Right. Um, so I and, and, and in some respects, it could be true. But I think that uh, in, in, in our hearts, I think that what is really happening is that we are fighting to be heard and we are fighting to be valued and respected. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, uh, that, that that has to change. Um, and, and I think that it's, it's kind of starting to change. I think that the tide is starting to turn, but it could be turning for the worse because now AABE is kind of being appropriated. I mean, um, with internet culture happening now, with hip hop becoming the biggest, officially becoming the biggest genre in the world, and hip hop is full of AAVE. Now you have uh, predominant culture taking AAVE and um, and essentially appropriating it and erasing those who are responsible for it. Um, and so now more respect is being paid to AAVE in some circles, but it's being it's being the respect is being paid to AAVE apart from black folks being the ones who have always wielded it. And, um, you know, with with the danger of almost any black cultural product, appropriation is always a threat. And it's always, um, it's always something that, 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 uh, 
that's that's real and and and, and is potentially harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would agree with those same sentiments. And then even speaking from like a heart level and what that does to someone's psyche, I, I, one of the things I've, I've often asked my fellow brothers and sisters if to help them understand the code switching or speaking American English, I would often ask them, what would it feel like for you going to a different country and having to learn that language and being seen or being being seen as unintelligent because you're having trouble learning how to communicate words that you haven't even learned yet. So there's you, you haven't even made the, the synaptic connections in your head between an object and a, you know how something sounds and already your identity and your worth is being devalued. So that's not, not only is that happening on an individual level, obviously, but it's happening on a corporate level within mm-hmm. the black community, especially within the Latin community. I've seen this so much and it's incredibly heartbreaking. And now for people of color, whether you're a black African-American who in certain spaces, you're having to speak standard American English, or if you're an Afro-Latino or a Latino trying to speak English it's incredibly, incredibly debilitating. And you're having to wrestle with this duality in your mind between when do I say this? How do I say it? So you're measuring how even you sound and what you say before it even comes out of your mouth because you know how it lands on people. Well, can, 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 uh, people can paint you in a certain light, either as intelligent, as someone who is eloquent with their speech and how they care themselves, or someone who is characterized as someone and how we've characterized people here stateside and we villainize the vulnerable to be unintelligible and also people who don't have something to offer, something to contribute to a meaningful and substantive conversation. Um, And even from a heart level, that's something I struggled with for a very long time, a very, very long time. You've connected with me on that. I I lived in another country. It was Italy for five years. I had to learn the language. And then there are these dialects that you have to understand how to how to navigate over there. And there's this this joke they have over in Europe. You know, if, if somebody what do you call somebody who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who only knows one language? An American, and it, so what I, you know, you could almost you could almost just say, you know, in some ways, a white American. But I, I hear your, your your connection there really it hit me. So thank you for that. Mm, yeah, th- thank you guys for you know taking it to the heart level. I think uh, people need to hear this because it, it is very much endemic to the experience of being. I'm just going to broaden and say a person of color here in the U.S. It's impossible to not have some sort of dualistic experience um, as part of your story. Um, and I, I, get, I get the joke occasionally, just going back to what you said, Amin, about how people will tease you for talking a certain way. And, and there's, there's a degree of truth to it, but sometimes we unintentionally reinforce maybe white supremacy or black inferiority when we make statements like that or down people, you know what I mean? And reinforcing uh, just black hatred and white supremacy, you're right. And and I've I found that even when our white friends make the statements of you don't sound like you're black, there's a there's a certain perception that they have about blackness. And it's if and in in some in many situations if people are honest, they'll tell you that the perception they hold is of the ghettoized uh, form of blackness, okay, and and it's so it's really it's a tragedy because what what that shows is that their access and their experience with the diversity of people of color is very limited, and they hold very myopic views. So in some ways, people don't even realize just how uh, narrow-minded they can be. Um, so I think th- these are all very important things to tease out. Um, and you guys sort of moved us in the direction of thinking about how, you know, folks don't quite understand that AAVE has very defined uh, grammatical rules and standards, and it functions uh, a bit like linguistic in- encryption. Um, and so when people attempt to speak AAVE, 
but don't know the rules of the community. Um, uh, excuse me, but the r- rules then the community knows not to trust that person, right? And so let's move on to considering what the relationship between language and power is. Uh, so let's, let's if you all could help us uh, tease that out a little bit, both of you all. Um, yeah, I think that... Um I think that going back to what I, I said earlier, that if you recognize that code switching comes from power dynamics, then we'll 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 see the the, the relationship with language and power. If if when we re- if we recognize that those who classify what it is to actually speak correctly are usually those who make the rules, and those who make the rules are usually those who are in power, right? Which right. means that if African Americans have another dialect that we usually have to conform to a society in which we speak another way in order to earn social capital um, and even intellectual capital, um, which, which means that we're living in a society that assigns that type of capital to the general American English in which they deem to be the standard, um, then I think that that shows you how power can be used when it comes to language, right? That my AAVE is not seen as as is not is not just as respected as as your as and, and even as our general American English that I have to essentially ch- switch myself up in in certain situations in order to earn dignity and that's directly connected to power um, and 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 I think that now again. When I talk about the appropriation of AABE, because a lot of people may not know that it's happening, but it is, especially online. Um, there's a, a lot of a lot of um, in pop culture. There are a lot of Black people that are speaking to the way that AABE is being appropriated by majority white suburban internet culture. Um, and so now that things like that is even happening, and it's becoming some in, in some ways acceptable, right? Um, but it's being acceptable while erasing Black people from the actual dialect. Then it also speaks to power. It also speaks to how how those things could even be taken, kind of like what I think it was what Paul Mooney said, cute on them, ugly on us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like how hair was done. You know, braids was seen as ghetto, and, and Kim Kardashian does braids, and People Magazine is like, this is fresh and edgy, and it's awesome, but Black Alicia Keys did braids, it was ghetto, it was, it was, it was, it was urban, and, and, and it, w- it was ugly, um, and I and I think that the same thing happens with AABE, but I think uh, I think also we can with with AABE kind of being suppressed within society, not seeing it, not 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 being seen as a as a dialect that 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 fosters and shows intelligence. Then we then we are essentially being um, suppressed, um, and and I can't be my full self because in certain settings I have to switch out of my full self and go into the self that I know will be respected in regards to how I speak. And that speaks directly to, I, I believe, the power dynamics of society of those who set the rules and, um, and everybody else who has to kind of abide by their standards because all language is made up. I don't be like, we know that, but it's, it's, it's all, there's no standard. Like, like everybody's language and dialect should be respected. And, and so um, the fact that, that Black people have to think about ways in which they have to switch some dialect, the, the dialect in which they may use, not 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 all, but a lot, in order to in order to get respect. Um, I think that it, it speaks directly to power dynamics that a majority culture could have. As a pastor, I'm curious how does this how does this play itself out in the church in Christian community? I think about how God communicated His truth. He communicated with words. And that those words were interpreted and translated through different languages over the centuries. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something powerful to be said there. God communicated his truth and his word to a specific people within a specific context and within a specific culture. And within redemptive history, we see how that cultural context influenced how they understood God's word, either through mm-hmm. his laws and obeying mm-hmm. the whatever the zeitgeist of the culture was in that day and age. Now we're finding ourselves in a place where within our Christian communities, stateside, I'm, I'm, because I'm often 
uh, oscillating between my conversations I have in Colombia with the community I'm connected there and then what we experience here stateside. Stateside here in America is so interesting because in different parts of the culture, uh, in different parts of the country, it's incredibly mixed. And there's this there's this mixture of of race and ethnicity and language. And as God's people become more and more amalgamated and we become a, a sancocho to you know borrow a very Latin term, <laughs> there needs to be an appreciation of the beauty and the complexities within language. And, and scripture mm. speaks to this very clearly, especially in Revelation. Not and when we, we see this with Paul too, that it's not in, in uh, the various calls for unity within the churches that he speaks to. It's not a call for uniformity. It's a call for unity, which speaks to an appreciation of the unique differences that God designed and created within different people group. That Amen. some of those things were developed through, you know, human ingenuity and, and, and insight, like language, right? And other things got through his providence instituted so that there could be a, a, a diversity with, within the experience of who God is. So I think about the, um, the, the American Christian experience. And I think about, you know, let's to borrow the term, the Billy Graham era, where there was this research, well, not a resurgence, but there's this surge of sending missionaries out to various parts of the world to take the message of the gospel to various countries and people groups. And in some instances, those the way the, the gospel was presented in some of those spaces, it was colonialized. And for example, in uh, in Colombia, where my family's from, when missionaries came to Buenaventura, where my dad's from, which is the coast, and my dad is several shades darker than me, he can speak a, ling a little bit of English, but he's a PhD, he's a genius, an absolute genius. Mm -hmm. When the missionaries came to Colombia, speaking English and using drawings and signs to help people understand the truth of God's word, they felt it was appropriate to teach an entire community that it was sinful to uh, for people to get an education. So my grandfather at the time, the church he was a part of, they were putting families under church discipline because they were still keeping kids in school. My father, who's one of 15, experienced that himself. And he saw how my grandfather disobeyed church leadership because they thought what my grandfather was doing was ungodly. So now we think about here in the 21st century, we're we may or may not still, well, we're in COVID, but we may or may not still continue to send missionaries all across the globe to carry the message of the gospel. But now we're in a unique position where literally the nations are coming to us. We're experiencing a rich diversity of God's multicultural, multi-ethnic community here on the ground. Right. And uh, uh, Richard Sips talks about how God's people are like a garden. So I think about our community, our little cultural enclave and all the various experiences that we are navigating through as a community, even this week, and trying to help people grapple and understand what's happening today in age. And I get a fuller picture of who God is when I'm able to sympathize with my fellow brother and sister who is from a completely different context, speaks a different language because their perspective on who God is is completely different from mine. So what Richard Sipp says, he says, when the God spirit blows upon that garden, which is filled with lilies and roses and all types of flowers and herbs, it releases this sweet mixture, the sweet aroma, which is supposed to be this representation of who God is. So if my only experience of who God is, is limited to a very uh, singular homogenized community or context, I, 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 I have no fear in saying this. There's something that's missing. You're, you're missing out on what God is doing within his global community and even within multicultural, multi-ethnic context is here in America and the hatred or how people of color or various race and different languages are vilified here stateside is disheartening, disheartening, and it grieves the heart of God. So when we think about the 
connection between language and power. And here stateside, we have predominant culture who owns, I'll use that word, owns the American standard language and is able to fabricate and engineer ways to put people who aren't able to adapt to the language as quickly as they would like to, it puts them at, at a disadvantage. So I think those are things that we need to consider within the Christian community as we think about language, power, and then also bearing in mind that our country is becoming more and more multicultural, multi-ethnic. And one more, one more thing I'll add, the issues that our fellow brothers and sisters that are part of predominant culture uh, that don't, either because they have proximity to the issue or not, they're going to have proximity. So for our fellow white brother and sister that doesn't feel the way of a black man being killed or doesn't feel the way of an immigrant being deported, if their son or daughter in 10 to 15 years from now marries into a family of a black man or an Afro-Latina woman, you better believe they're gonna feel the same struggle because then it becomes family then at that point it becomes family. So within God's community, within God's redemptive community of all various communities that we have here stateside, of all people, we should be uh, offering compassion, love, care, concern for the vulnerable. So those are just some quick thoughts as I think about the connection between language, power, and how we should think about this in a pastoral way. Amen. For more interviews, resources, and discussion questions based on the content you've heard, go to asinheaven.com. That's A-S-I-N-H-V-N.com. If you liked this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which you can do right from the Apple Podcasts app if you're listening there, or take a second to share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.